Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here at the meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society uh, and talking with Dr. Craig Keener. Uh, Craig serves with me on the, on the board of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is the F.M. and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He is, uh, let's just say, he is one of the most prolific biblical scholars that I'm aware of uh, and is so, is so productive. He is the author of 24 books. Um, and the, the, there's a couple of books I want to talk to you about today, Craig. So welcome. Uh, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate your taking the time to come be on the podcast with us. It's, it's my privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me first, uh, one of the books I like to talk about first is the book Impossible Love. Uh, it's a story of how you met your wife, Medina. Uh, and I, I take it I pronounced that correctly. Medine. Claude Medine. Yeah. Uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you two met and why you wrote the book Impossible Love. Well, everybody has a love story. Or probably, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but lots of people have love stories. Uh, but this one, I think we were also able to communicate something of, of God's heart in the midst of suffering. Medine um, was a, a war refugee for 18 months in her country of Congo. Now, that also put me through some struggles because we already were close friends at that point. I wasn't able to, to be in touch with her for that year and a half. What I didn't know if she was alive or dead. All I knew was the last letter I got from her said she, she didn't know if she was going to live or die. And anyway, so it's the, it's the story of how we got together. We we originally met when we were, um, she was an exchange student, and I was doing my my PhD in New Testament at Duke. She was doing her work in history, and. And yeah, she, she's a PhD also. Yes, her, right. her, her PhD is in history. Uh, it's in it's in American history, which is not um, well. There's a lot of Americans who can teach American history, so she she especially teaches French. I see, which is her first language. So how did how did she become a war refugee? Did she go back to Congo after her PhD studies? Yes, uh, she went back. Uh, she wanted to be with her, her family, even though there was a war going on. And when she got there, uh, oh, it's a long story. Um, she, she, first of all, she ended up having to flee from the capital, where she was teaching uh, French at the U.S. Embassy. Sorry, she was teaching English at the U.S. Embassy for, for Francophone Congolese residents. And she'd also been teaching some at the university there. But she had to flee the capital, uh, sick with malaria, and then um, some months later, war came to her hometown in Dolisi, and she had to flee again, this time with them pushing her father, disabled father, in a wheelbarrow, Mm. and they left a home that they would never see again, uh, and ended up basically in the forest, or villages in the forest, um, abandoned buildings for the next year and a half, sometimes running for their lives. Uh, at any given time, some member of the family was, was deathly sick from malaria or typhoid or, 
or something else, and just trying to stay ahead of the of the soldiers and the fighting. Hmm. And then she she made it safely to the U.S. and then you were reunited again. That- yeah, uh, she she came on a fiance visa, which uh, unfortunately took a bit longer than it should have because by the time we finally made up our minds to get together. 9/11 happened right when I, mm. right when we were oh. getting ready to send the the um, <clears throat> materials in, and so things got delayed, and um, she actually ended up being stranded in a third country for about eight months before she could get to the U.S. But the Lord did so many so many miracles along the way, and we're grateful for this. Sounds like an amazing story. If you want to, for our listeners, if you want to read a little bit more about it. Craig's written a fairly lengthy book on on the whole the whole narrative of that called Impossible Love, and we'll uh, we'll have a way that you can access that in the transcript of this. So Thanks. it's 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 actually a short book. We had to cut forty five percent of it to make it as short as it was, um, but then again, I'm not known for writing short books. So <laughs> well, that gets us to the the, uh, the the books that I want to talk more about today. I think I think we could say that uh, your relationship with Medine and how you guys, the two of you made it together, counts as one of those major miracles in your yeah. life. But you've written a two-volume set over excess of a thousand pages mm-hmm. on the subject of miracles. Um, and so I guess my first question is, what what motivated you to undertake that? Because your field has been, been pretty technical, New Testament studies. You've mm-hmm. written a lot of commentaries on the Gospels. Being an expert on the on the life and teachings of Paul, um, so what 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 made you want to go in this direction? Well, if you ask me what motivated me to write a thousand page book on miracles, I could say nothing because I wasn't planning to do it <laughs> initially. But it was it was certainly one of the most enjoyable projects I've worked on. Uh, you know, we all we're all aware of suffering in the world, but. Miracles is a happy topic. I, I just was trying to write a footnote for my Acts commentary because one of the arguments against the reliability of Acts, you know, one-fifth of Acts or one-third of Mark, roughly, deal with miracles, uh, healings, uh, casting out spirits, um, nature miracles in Mark, and, and so on. And... You just, uh, well, that was one of the reasons people argued against their, their reliability. And so if I'm dealing with historic, historiographic questions, historical reliability questions, I needed to deal with the issue of whether these kind of things can happen. So it was just going to be a footnote. But as I researched it more and more, it grew more and more. And, you know, by the time it was 200 pages, I decided, okay, this needs to be a separate book. And, say that's quite a footnote. Yeah, by the time, yeah, and eventually it was over a thousand. So, okay. So tell tell our listeners some of the stories that you uncovered as a result of your research. Uh, what what are what, what are some of the things that just sort of blew your mind uh, that you researched, heard about, read about, came into firsthand contact with yeah. uh, as you explored this subject. Yeah, I could give you a thousand pages worth of examples, but uh, but I'll tell you one that really blew my mind. 
and that was because it was something so close to us. I, I had heard the story before from my wife, but it was actually when I interviewed the the my, my wife's source that I got the details. I was talking with Antoinette Malambe, uh, with my wife translating for me, because my wife knew the story only secondhand herself. So uh, we interviewed Antoinette Malambe. She she talked about when her daughter Therese was two years old, that she cried out that she had been bitten by a snake. And by the time her mother got to her, she found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village, so she strapped the child to her back and ran to a nearby village where a family friend, Koko Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. And Koko Moise prayed, and, and Therese started breathing again, and the next day she was fine. And now she has a master's degree uh, from a seminary in, in Cameroon. So I asked Antoinette Malambe, how long was it that Therese wasn't breathing? She had to stop and think to kind of calculate, well, to get from this village to that village with this mountain and that mountain. She said about three hours. Now, of course, after six minutes with yeah. no oxygen, yeah. you have irreparable brain damage starting in. But Therese had no brain damage. And this is not by any means the most dramatic story I found, uh, or even the most dramatic story I found from somebody that I, I or my wife knows. But this one was particularly mind-blowing to me because Antoinette Malambe was my mother-in-law and Therese is my sister-in-law. Wow. That got my wow, attention. I guess it did. So that, I mean, that would almost qualify, I mean, three hours, I mean, that would almost qualify as a resurrection. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, by any, by any medical definition, she yes. had died. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, the, and of course, there's no way to test medically because there was no medical help available. Right. And, um, but it's the same situation you have in the Gospels. But there are other cases where the person had been dead for eight hours. Uh, some, somebody we, we know, actually, there were two people we know who are witnesses of that one. And the person came back after prayer and uh, a number of other cases. Tell our listeners a little bit... Um how was how the book, you know, I mean, you've, you've got, I mean, I've read, I've read some of, of the first volume. Uh, and I confess I haven't made it through all thousand pages. Um, but there, the book is just, is full of both volumes, full of remarkable stories like this. Uh, how has how the book been received, both in Christian circles and then outside Christian circles? In Christian circles, it's been received really, really well. Um, in secular circles, uh, well, on the internet at least, uh, atheists came out with critiques of it right away. Uh, some of them, some of the critiques were based on an interview with me that was published in Christianity Today rather than in the book itself. I mean, there was one person that was so crazy, they were saying, you know, uh, this is all from Congo, this is where they, they uh, burn child witches and stuff like that. Well, first, first of all, um, the stories weren't all by any means from Congo, but my wife is from Congo, so that's why Christianity Day featured that part. It was from a different Congo, so the person who did that doesn't know their geography. Right. 
plus, you know, these were not from people who burn child witches or anything like that. I mean, it was these were mainstream evangelical Christians. And anyway, uh, some of the some of the critiques, and actually some of the praises from the Christians showed that they actually hadn't read the book either. <laughs> but uh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful for the. Um, the engagement that's come since then because there has been a lot of good engagement and people have taken it seriously and taken to heart some of the, the arguments in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, the, the, the stories are so compelling that just just based on, you know, the, the empirical data that you have, I find the case for miracles pretty hard to refute. So as, as you've cataloged these different stories and different accounts, what's been the sort of the breadth of the geography that's been involved? Well, I tried to get accounts from all over the world. I mean, I tried to get accounts from all sorts of different cultures. It was easier for me for some cultures than, than for other cultures. Um, I had a lot of connections with Africa, different parts of Africa. Um, a lot of a lot of these things were published in Asia. Uh, a lot of accounts have been published from Asia, and of course, accounts from the West. It was easier to get the medical documentation. So there were strengths with a lot of a lot of these. I, I had to work harder to get stuff from Latin America because um, a lot of it's in Spanish, and so I, I got what I I could. But I think I think there's a good representative sample. I mean, it's only a fraction of what's out there. But there was a Pew Forum study done, I think, in 2006 of Pentecostals and Charismatics in 10 countries that concluded, well, if you look at the percentages of Pentecostals and Charismatics who claim to have witnessed divine healing, and then the, you know, the hard numbers of, the, of those in those countries, it comes out to somewhere around 200 million people in those 10 countries alone who claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. What is more striking, especially for people who don't like Pentecostals or Charismatics, uh, what's, what's more striking is that the survey also in those 10 countries dealt with Christians who didn't consider themselves Pentecostal or Charismatic, and around 39% of them claimed to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. So we're talking about something like you know hundreds of millions of people you know, it's not just a few people. Now, obviously those numbers, none of us would say that all of those can only be explained as a miracle. Um, none of us would say that all of those are authentic. But still, we're talking about an awful lot of stories. And when you, when you dig in and start interviewing some of the people and looking at some of the medical documentation, I mean, we're, we're not talking about a little bit of evidence. We're talking about a lot of evidence. Yes, I mean, it seems to me you can't discount it all. Yeah, oh, it's it's just that oh, is that overwhelming? Yes. So t tell give our listeners a story from the U.S. or some other part of the West where that where you do have medical documentation to back up the account and to, and to back up the interpretation of it that this is genuinely something miraculous. Uh, Greg Spencer is a is a case of this. This one actually is I think this one is not in the book because I came across this afterwards. But Greg Spencer had been going blind due to macular degeneration. He was 2,200 in one eye, uh, 2,400 in the other, and had already been through training for, for the blind. He 
uh, already was on disability for this. And he went to a retreat for the healing of the mind. That's what he was praying for. He wasn't praying for healing of his physical vision. Mm. But when the Lord healed his mind, he opened his eyes and he could see. And uh, there, were, there were a number of other people who also um, who were there at the, at the occasion, who knew him before and after, who could testify of this. But we also have the medical documentation. And, and the reason, usually people don't get medical documentation, even when, when it's available. Um, and sometimes there's also a catch-22 because, you know, after so many years, the medical de- documentation has been discarded. But if it hasn't been after so many years, people say, oh, I might just be temporary. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, all healing is temporary because sooner or later we're going to die um, unless, you know, the Lord comes back before then. But in this case, he had to have the medical documentation because he had been on disability. And he, nice. he wrote to the Social Security Administration saying, I'm not blind anymore. They said macular degeneration doesn't undegenerate. So they investigated him for fraud. And after, after a year or two of investigation, they finally concluded, and, and we have all the medical documentation, that no, he, he had, the way they put it in their, in their letter from the Social Security Administration, you have received a remarkable return of your visual acuity, therefore you are no longer qualified for disability. Oh, there's a downside to everything. You know, now you've got to go work. No. But, but there, there are a number of cases like that. Uh, Barbara Snyder is another one that's not in the book. Um, but uh, I, I, I heard this one from somebody who'd worked with Craig Evans, followed up with Barbara Snyder and her doctors, and um, passed this on to Lee Strobel, who, who followed up on this too. But Barbara Snyder was... Um, she, she had been dying um, from a severe form of multiple sclerosis uh, for 15 years she'd been going downhill and this time the, the doctor said she won't be coming back to the hospital and she was healed um, just suddenly she heard a voice saying my child rise up and walk well she couldn't walk <laughs> but, she, but it happened you know she did it and her hands had been curled up so much that every few months they'd have to uncurl her, her hands to get the dead skin out. And she said she'd been curled up like a pretzel. Um, she actually had to have a breathing tube because even her diaphragm didn't work on its own. So she, she and, and she'd also gone blind. And so when she was healed, the first thing she noticed was her feet were flat on the ground. Second thing she noticed was her hands were, were open. And the third thing she noticed was she was seeing it. And with her eyes, and she began dancing around. Now, normally, somebody's healed; they're still going to their muscles are still going to be atrophied if they've been unable to walk for a long time. But she starts dancing around, <laughs> jumping around. I mean, even her even her muscles were unatrophied. It's uh, and and I talked with uh, two two of her doctors from the time, and they both testified. Yes, this is. There's no medical explanation for this. This was in 1981 that this happened. She said no recurrence. That's that's, that's just staggering to think to think about, uh, yeah. and it's all all very well documented too. Yeah. Um, so, I guess what's what surprised you the most as a result of your study? 
you know, from when you set out to do this uh, to when you got to the end, what surprised you? Probably what surprised me the most was the real evidence for it. I mean, I at the beginning, I was expecting to find some reports of, you know, different kinds of healings that had already been all collected in the book. At, at the beginning, I didn't find all that. Eventually, I found some more of it. But what surprised me was the dramatic nature of, of some of this. I had been an atheist before my conversion, and as a Christian, I naturally did believe in miracles. And as an atheist, of course, I didn't. But even though I believed in them in principle, I kind of was like... In principle, I believed it, but I I was questioning witnesses with kind of a, a skeptical approach to try to uh, whittle away at anything that wasn't uh, necessarily accurate. But after a while, it just became so overwhelming that I said, you know... I'm too skeptical myself. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to check. Yes, you had to check your own. Yes. You know, semi-anti-supernatural bias. Yeah. And, and uh, part of it was inherited through my academic training. I mean, not that it was deliberately anti-supernatural, but it it was deliberately non-supernatural. Right. And yeah. So the I, you know, the conventional wisdom that we hear, kind of over and over again, is that the the prevalence of miraculous activity is much more in the developing world than it is in the West. Uh, first of all, is is that true? And then, if if so, how do you account for that? I think it's true in some places more than more than in others. J.P. Moreland points out that, well, this was a number of years ago, maybe ten years ago. He pointed out that. In the previous three decades, about 70% of all evangelical growth had been due to signs and wonders. So where there's cutting-edge evangelism, God does more dramatic things. But God often heals us here. Um, And yet, when he does it, we don't always recognize (laughs) that it is God because of our, our worldview here. And also... A lot of my African friends say, look, life in Africa is a miracle. We have to have miracles. But you, you in the West, you have, you have this wonderful medical technology. That's a gift from God. We should celebrate that. It's not, it's not something to, to feel badly about. God can heal us through medicine. God can heal us through um, exercise or just the things he's placed in our body. It's still healing. It may not be a dramatic sign or wonder, but it's still an answer to prayer. It still could fit James chapter 5 or gifts of healings uh, for those of us who who believe in that. Um, But in some places, like I I had a student from from India, a a doctor of ministry student, who said, you know, almost everybody that he prays for in India gets healed. And he said he prays for people here in the U.S. It doesn't happen, but back home it, it happens. His, his Baptist church grew from just like maybe half a dozen people to 600 members from, from almost all from non-Christian backgrounds. And he said because these precious people have never had a chance mm-hmm. 
to be exposed to to God's extravagant love. He works in extravagant ways to let them know. And, you know, but even with miracles, life expectancy is higher here than in Africa. Um, the, the maternal mortality rate in childbirth is so much higher there. So miracles aren't meant to be a panacea for the world's problems. They're meant to be signs of the kingdom, that is, they're, they're a foretaste of God's future promise to us when there's going to be no more sorrow, there's going to be no more pain, when God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So even when, you know, it doesn't happen to all of us, we don't all get a sign or a wonder, and sometimes we don't even get healing in this physical body, in, the, in this life. But when it happens to any of us, it's a reminder to all of us the, of God's plans for us, that we all will be ultimately healed if we have trust in, in Jesus because we'll be with him forever. Yeah, I'd say that, that's, the, that's the big miracle that's coming. Yeah, that's um, the, that's and, the awesome. Know, when we meet the Lord face to face. So what's, so what's your response when you pray? Or yeah. Lots of people pray and a yeah. miracle doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think of my friend Nabil Qureshi. Uh, yeah. I know we whew, we were really really praying for him. Um, Nabil Qureshi, for for the sake of our listeners who might yeah. not be aware of him, was one of the one of the most most uh, compelling um, apologists to Islam. Yeah, uh, having converted to to Christianity out of Islam himself, yeah. he died of stomach cancer. Yeah, uh, at a uh, I think when he was in his early thirties. Yeah, um, yeah, and th- that was that was really hard. And, and you don't understand why it happens to this person and not to that person. I mean, I can explain theologically the already not yet of the kingdom, why it doesn't happen to everybody, but why this one and not that one. Um, I Sometimes I'll joke, you know, it's obvious looking at me uh, that healing doesn't always happen. Look, I have male pattern balding. I, I wear glasses. But my wife and I have also been through a series of miscarriages. So we understand, you know, it, it's not... It's not saying that somebody has lack of faith. Sometimes God uses things. Um, just um, uh, was it last night? I think uh, we were we were talking, and um, David Dockery was sharing about Grant Osborne, a scholar friend of ours who passed away uh, just this past month uh, after an amazing career of scholarship. But when he was young, he had asthma. He had asthma all his life. But because of the asthma, he ended up not playing sports with the other kids. He ended up reading, and it led him into a life of scholarship, a, a blessing to, to the rest of the body of Christ. So sometimes we don't see the outcome. Um, and you know, each of us has different tests. You look at the seven churches of Asia in, in the book of Revelation. Um, some were tested in prosperity. Some were tested in persecution. You know, we don't get to choose what our test is, but all of us are called to overcome. And, and in each case, it's a witness to God's glory where God gives grace to overcome in different kinds of situations. Um, it doesn't mean to stop praying for healing. I mean, Grant still prayed for healing all his life. And sometimes... Um, well, it's, it's wonderful when God does it. 
And when he doesn't, we still know that we have that hope. We will be fully healed with our resurrection bodies. I love how you put that, that, you, that healing now is a foretaste of yes. the glory of the kingdom. That's such a good way yeah. to frame that. Uh, I, mean, there are, I mean, there are lots of kingdom fortastes that we're experiencing yeah. now. And we give glory to God whenever we, yeah. whenever we get the, the opportunity to yeah. be a part of those. Uh, but it's, but we, don't ex, we don't expect that, yeah. uh, that, the kingdom, that, that we would experience the kingdom in its fullness now. That's, that's for when the Lord returns. That's, um, in Matthew 11 and Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist sends to Jesus because he hears of the works of Jesus. He hears of these, these healings taking place, and he says, are you the one to come or should we wait for somebody else? You know, because God told him the coming one was going to baptize in fire. He didn't see any fire, so <laughs> people are getting healed, but uh, what's, what's this about? And Jesus answers him with words from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, saying, um, you know, the, the disabled will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, and so on. The good news will be preached to the poor. He says, he's going back to these passages about the, the coming Messianic era and saying, John, these are signs of the kingdom right now. And so he's already saying, in his ministry, the kingdom is being expressed. But again, it's a, it's a sign. It's not the fullness, not the consummation. Or in, in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, where he says, If I, by the finger of the Spirit of God, drive out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these are signs of the kingdom. They're a foretaste of the kingdom. But we're still longing for the day when we're going to see him face to face. You're here. Craig, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, this is incredibly compelling stuff. I'd want to refer our listeners to your two-volume series on miracles. Uh, I, I don't think that there's an abridged version of that coming out any, anytime soon, um, but it's a wonderful volume. You've just done you've done tremendous work uh, that, that is of huge benefit to the kingdom, not only with your technical biblical scholarship, but with this in, incredible stuff you've done on miracles. So I'd uh, I want our listeners to be totally aware. Craig Keener, just just the two-volume entitled Miracles, and then the book that tells the story of your relationship to your wife uh, you know, called Impossible Love. Both great books that I'd encourage all of our listeners to get hold of uh, and to digest. So, Craig, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Craig Keener, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed our conversation today, give us a rating on your podcast app, share it with a friend. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.